All right, we're going to go ahead and uh, pray and get started for this morning. Um, we've got color sheets and stuff for the kids if you need those. Ben's got those if anybody wanted one and didn't get a copy. The sermon notes are going around. Um, so they'll be your way. They'll be coming along your way here in just a second. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Um, do a couple of quick announcements and then we'll move right into part three of understanding money in relationship to um, this church. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We want to once again just praise you and thank you for who you are. We thank you for this church, for these individuals that you have saved out of their sin and brought them into the goodness of the gospel. You've opened their eyes to see Jesus Christ and who he is. And so, Father, we thank you for that this morning. Um, God, we want to just acknowledge that our knowledge of you is still insufficient and we want to know you more. So, God, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Um, God, that you would use the word to change our lives. That once again, we would not come here in the same way that we come to watch a movie, to be entertained, to have something to talk about for a little bit, and then to completely forget what happened here. God, I pray that we would come with the purpose this morning of learning not only for ourselves, but also learning so that we can be equipped to teach other people what your word has to say. So God, I pray that you'd be with our time this morning, that it would be profitable, it would be encouraging where it needs to be encouraging, and it would be convicting where it needs to be convicting. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just real quick, um, just kind of keeping you up to date on things that are going on. We do have the uh, men's disc golf uh, outing happening this Friday. I'll email details about that tomorrow as far as exactly where to meet and what time to meet. But we are planning on doing that this Friday, which is June 24th. If you don't have disc golf discs, then we do have plenty of those to go around. Um, so everybody's invited to that. And then we have the ladies' pool day, which is July 9th. That's a Saturday. If you're planning on going to that, let Jen know so that she can make plans according to food and that type of thing. So that will be taking place at Cortland's house on Saturday, July 9th. Um, just again to continue um, giving you encouragement to give to this church. We, uh, we need money for food every week when we're doing lunch. We're not doing lunch today because of Father's Day, but we do plan to, um, to eat at different times. Um, and so we need food to help cover the cost of that. We were a little bit short last week just to keep you updated. Um, so if you can give money towards that, um, that's a real benefit. Um, we got the P.O. box taken care of, so we do have a physical address here in Sonoy that's posted on the website. Um, this week, we purchased the, uh, the name Sovereign Hope as a legal corporation. We've submitted that to the Georgia Secretary of State. Um, as soon as he affirms that, that nobody else has that name, then we'll get confirmation, which will allow us to get a tax ID, allow us to um, get nonprofit status, and then be able to open up a bank account, which means you'll then be able to, any checks that you write here would be able to be written directly to Sovereign Hope. We'll have our own bank account and all that set up. So we're moving towards that. Um, it costs $200 to get the name legalized. So that just kind of gives you an idea of where we need money given to. 
Um, and it'll be a, another fee to get the nonprofit status and the tax ID and all that worked out. So just to kind of give you an idea of things that we need money given to um, right now. Yeah, and we got uh, – I sent out an email about continuing to pray about the park situation. Um, ben was able to meet with the Boy Scouts that own the uh, – or run the building that's outside of the fellowship hall where we've talked about doing um, kids' ministry. They're really open to um, letting us use that facility. The guy that Ben met with needs to talk to a couple other guys. Um, they don't pay anything for it. Um, so there wasn't like any discussion about money necessarily to use it. Um, so just continue praying about that because that will really open up a, a good opportunity for us to be able to do kids ministry there on Sunday mornings. Um, and then Ben's continuing to work with the city about getting um, dates set up for us to be at the fellowship hall. They're not going to let us do a long-term contract because of the fact that if they give us a discount rate, in the end they lose money because Sunday's such a busy day. Um, but they are open to letting us have a lot of dates there. So we're hoping to nail down some stuff with them this week, get that on our calendar so that we can start meeting there sooner at 150. Yeah. Which, I mean, is what we had planned on and which we originally said was a good price. When we found out that we might be able to get it for 50% off of that, then it became a really good price. Um, but it's still a, a really good price based on other places that we've, sort of priced around here for what it would look like. And again, we're not in a contract, so at any point we can leave that facility, go somewhere else, and we find a better situation. We don't have to worry about being locked into anything too long. Okay, so we'll continue to keep you updated about that. Um, as far as where we're meeting, we do plan to meet here at Ben's house next week. Um, and I think we got all the parking situation taken care of. There's been some complaints by the Homeowners Association about too many cars on the streets. So we're trying to be sensitive to that and uh, getting everybody parked in driveways and stuff. All right. Any questions about any of that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I won't be here next week, but we're still planning to meet to um, we'll probably structure it more like a home group with questions that go along with stuff that we've been studying and Ben and Tyson are going to lead more of a discussion time to just recap stuff that we've been talking about over the past few weeks and talking about ways to apply that, which is ultimately what home groups are going to end up being. Right now we're not doing home groups, so next week will kind of serve as that function for us for the past couple of Sunday mornings that we've talked about. I don't have any... On me, but I can email them to you. Yep. Everybody else got sermon notes that need them? All right. This morning we are transitioning into part three of uh, a church that treasures Christ and not money. Specifically today we're looking at how a disciple values and invests money differently than he did before salvation. We started two weeks ago, we looked at how a, um, a disciple sees money differently, and we talked about the, the need for coming to Christ. When we come to Christ, we have to view money and possessions differently to really come to Christ. And we looked at some difficult passages that Jesus presents to people that are interested in following him. Jesus says, you have to give up everything to come follow me. 
Now, we said that Jesus doesn't command every single one of us to sell everything. But we also said that Jesus does at times command some people to sell everything. And so there has to be an understanding for everyone that there's kind of a releasing of ownership and a releasing of, of a grip on our material possessions. And we looked at two different cases. We looked at the rich ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, go sell everything, give it to the poor. And, we, and we're told that the rich ruler walks away. And then we looked right after that, that, that Jesus tells his disciples, look, it's virtually impossible for a rich person to come to Christ. That, that it's, it's, it's virtually impossible beyond God and his sovereignty and his ability to change people's hearts. It doesn't happen. And then we're given an example of how it does happen. And we saw the story of Zacchaeus, how Zacchaeus was rich and, and was living his life for the purpose of money. He was greedy. He was dishonest. He was obtaining money in, in ways that were not, um, not right. And we see him sit down with Jesus. We don't have the details of that conversation, but we know in some way Jesus shares the gospel with him. Zacchaeus responds and says, I want to follow you. And in response to that says, I'm going to give all my stuff away. So two radically different views. The rich ruler says, I'm not going to give all my stuff away when Jesus asks him. Zacchaeus voluntarily gives his stuff away. And Jesus affirms that move and says, salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. Last week, we looked at how a disciple needs money differently. And we said that because of our relationship with God as our father, God takes care of our daily needs. We looked at how unsafe people have to worry daily about what they're going to eat and how they're going to clothe themselves. And it's a picture of how we worry about daily needs. How am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to pay the bills? And we looked at how Jesus affirms to his disciples and says, you don't have to worry about that stuff. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of this so that you can worry about building the kingdom. He says, don't seek after these things, which a lost person seeks after. Instead, seek after the kingdom, and I'm going to take care of everything. And we said that, that Jesus also affirms to us in the New Testament that, that he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. That money does. As much as we want it to stay with us, money doesn't give us all the time what we need it to give us. Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Which is why we give, we give our, our affection to him. We make him our treasure because he's the lasting treasure. Okay? This week we're looking at, we're transitioning more into how a disciple uses his money. In two weeks when we sit down again, We'll get real practical about how a Christian is supposed to use their money on a practical daily basis. Today, we're getting into some of that discussion as we talk about how a disciple values it differently and invests it differently. There's a new, a new perspective for someone who follows Christ about where their money needs to go ultimately. Okay. Before we get into this, though, I want to get some feedback from you guys. Um, on a couple of issues in, in relation to this. What are some, in your perspective, what are some negatives and positives about paying church leadership? And what are some negatives and positives just overall in giving money to the church? Negatives and positives for giving money to the church. 
and negatives and positives for paying church leadership or, or paying pastors. What are some thoughts on, on that? Because there are negatives and positives. So you don't have to worry about there not being answers to one of that side. All right, so a positive for paying church leadership would be the opportunity for them to not have to have a separate job, which frees them up to focus more on the church and pastoral functions. The negative is that there's a temptation for greed and for uh, maybe using that position for material gain. Other thoughts on that? And think in terms for you personally, because I know... I'm sure that some of you have opinions about this based on maybe experiences. So you can even reflect back on experiences that have helped shape your opinions about these two issues. I think one negative that we had was we weren't sure where the money was going. Okay. Okay, a negative to give into the church maybe is that you're not confident where it's going. And in some church situations, there may not be full disclosure where you can even find out if you asked um, where that money is going. Other thoughts, negatives and, and positives for giving to the church and paying leadership? Okay. 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 A negative of giving to the church would be like you have your Old Testament, New Testament. It's like tithing things that people would want to give to the church, and they're like they think, oh, well, I need to give such and such amount, so then it's like I have to give instead of I want to give, and so then you have. Okay, so negative being that sometimes there's an attitude of feeling like you have to do it and it takes away from the joy and, and the cheerfulness of being able to give. And then also the potential that families and individuals begin to be viewed as dollar signs as opposed to souls that need salvation and need discipleship. Um, and that, that could go two ways. One, as the church continues to grow, there's the potential for church leadership to want more people so that the, uh, the salaries continue to go up. But then there's also the flip side that as people continue to leave or the church continues to, um, to shrink, that people begin to be viewed as dollar signs as though we've got to go get more people or else we're going to get fired. Neither situation is desirable. Um, unfortunately, at times we create those situations by just mismanaging money to where um, that begins to be the perspective. And, and I've been in those situations, and, and neither one of them are, are fun. Any other positives or negatives that you could see about 
me that this would be when you give it to the church and then you see it and you waste it. Okay. Okay, a negative. We've got the negative of not knowing where it goes, and then the negative of knowing where it goes and realizing that's a poor way for it to go. A positive is seeing it like seeing it to go to something like a good child, like someone who needs it, like if they have a, a place where it goes for people who need food or shelter, something like that goes there, or just to like give a bill to it. Okay. Okay. A positive seeing it be used for for good purposes and being able to rejoice. Because obviously, as money, I mean, we could all just distribute our money to things that we think are good purposes. But by pooling money together, at times there are greater things that we can do together than if we were to just give individually to things. Um, so that would be a positive. Being able to bring money together, we now have more money overall that can be used for something bigger for God's purpose as opposed to us individually trying to do it on our own. I think the biggest thing for me is seeing, seeing the money that we, that we gladly give being ineffective here, whether okay. it be for uh, uh, pastor salary or for, for whatever. You know, we, we give because we want to, because it's mandatory, because it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. You get the the wasteful aspect, but then maybe just the ineffective aspect of giving to the church or giving to leadership, where you're not getting much of a return. When you when you look when you sit down and look on paper, you're not getting what you're paying for. I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but we have done. We have done the right thing when we do give. Right. You know, I mean, we've done we've done our part, but then it's disheartening when you know you've done your part and you've graciously given, and then to see it wasted, mismanaged, or whatever. Right. So, yeah. I mean, we've done obedient, we've done our part, but you're just like, wow, okay, what why is it right? Any other thoughts, positive, negatives to giving to these to these two different areas? Yeah, I agree with Jason. If you look at the budget and say that that doesn't know I guess what the party of the church can do, I guess it's gotta be a certain one more commission and more gospel centered, so it's kind of the bottom of that list as far as the money okay. uh sent out or whatever. Yeah, where maybe if you look at a budget, the things that we would deem most important based on what the New Testament says seems to get the smaller portion of the pie. When it's divided up about where we're going to use our money, um, I think as far as like being the pastor, that deal can ultimately become a struggle like for you or for pastors, just because like giving is not always necessarily going to be an exact dollar amount. And so one week, like you might get a larger sum than another, and it can just become discouraging. I feel like just being like. Oh, man, I might not do something right, but people aren't just giving or whatever. And then sometimes you feel like I just got to amp up my sermons or like do right. stuff or something. You know, like, and then other times it may be a plethora. And you're just like, I'm the man. <laughs> <laughs> so I just feel like it could be kind of a stumbling block if that's like the only income. 
yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a temptation for a pastor to, one, either become very, very prideful, very greedy, and very um, subjected to covetousness because he's making a lot of money. And there's pride in the sense that, hey, I'm building my kingdom, basically. There's also the other perspective that I need money so much that I'm, I'm careful in what I say when I preach because I don't want to offend anybody, have somebody leave, and now it affects my finances. Um, and it can become a real struggle and a real worry, which goes back to really what we said last week, that <clears throat> just as much as it applies to the individual church member, the same applies for the pastor that he has a responsibility to recognize that God takes care of his needs. God's going to take care of what he eats. God's going to take care of what he puts on to wear. Um, and so a pastor has to battle that mentality just as much as an individual believer, that he needs money differently. Um, and if he's not careful, he'll fall right into the, the mindset that he needs money to feed his family when, in fact, God has promised to take care of that for him. So definitely a battle that a pastor can have to go through in that situation as well. Any other thoughts or perspectives on that? want to, um, especially here in this context, we want to create a place where you're comfortable giving your money because we know that if the Holy Spirit is working in your life, that there should be some desire to give of your money somewhere, and we want to create a, an environment where you can be confident to give here, knowing that it's not going to be wasted, it's not going to be ineffective, um, that you can be joyful and, and generous in your giving and feel good about giving to this church. Um, I, I've shared with you that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that this will be a radically different perspective on money and giving, that our budget will be radically different than what uh, maybe you've been used to in times past at churches. We're working hard on that, getting that put together. Um, we'll be talking through that in the next few weeks. Um, but again, it's important that we continue to work through Scripture together seeing what Scripture has to say about money so that when we look at a budget, hopefully we can all look at a budget that we put together and say, man, this goes right along with what we've already learned in Scripture. Like this reflects what God seems to be communicating to us about what we need to do with our money. Okay? Um, in your notes here, disciple values and invest money differently. A couple of things to consider when seeking to invest your money as a Christian. When we're talking about investing, we're talking about where are we going to ultimately put our money? Where are we going to prioritize um, our spending? First thing I put in my notes is that we must learn to invest our money globally. We want Sovereign Hope to be very intentional about meeting uh, needs that are here in Sonoy, that are meeting needs in Griffin and Sharpsburg, Peachtree City, Noonan, as different people establish their families here and and live in these these areas. We want to meet needs here. We want to, to give money to this church 
and we want to see the gospel go out. But we want to have a global perspective in doing that. Um, I was I was reading and studying and just thinking through some issues this week. Um, and I, I put in my notes, as a church, we must sense the urgency when countries have received Coca-Cola from our country, but have not received the gospel from the church. I'm afraid that, that corporate America has done a better job of getting its product around the world better than the church has done in getting the, the most unbelievably good news around the world. It's estimated there are 2.5 billion people who have absolutely no access to the gospel today. 2.5 billion people woke up today on this planet and have no access to the gospel. They can't pick up the Bible and read it in their language. They don't have a church in their village that's communicating the gospel for them to go to on a Sunday morning. They don't have a language that they can understand where they can get on the internet and listen to podcasts of pastors, 2.5 billion people got up today and do not have an opportunity to respond to Christ through a written or verbalized gospel in their area. That should be alarming. I've talked with missionaries who have gone into these areas before and Coca-Cola is already there. We've got to sense the urgency. And, and I know we're a small group of people. And, and we obviously can't conquer the world on our own. But we have to think through how can we be global focused because it's absolutely necessary that we be global focused. All right? So our church, our church has to think in terms of using our money globally. The pattern for understanding and showing love. We talk about love. What is love? What does that mean? The pattern for understanding it and showing it in Scripture always involves giving for the sake of others. John 3.16, for God so loves the world that he gave his son. We see this pattern all through Scripture. Love involves giving, sacrificing for the sake of somebody else. In um, 2 Corinthians 8.9. We see the concept going on in John 3.16 illustrated further. It says in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, I say this is not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the same picture that's given to us in Philippians 2. You've got Jesus who is ruling and reigning in heaven. He's got the um, unadulterated worship of, of heavenly beings, angels and creatures that are described in Isaiah and Revelation, giving him the honor that he is due on a second-by-second -second basis. I mean, he's got everything. There's no suffering in heaven. He's enjoying what, what he deserves. Unadulterated worship by the, by the created beings that, that he's responsible for. Philippians 2 says he gives that up. He humbles himself. He becomes obedient to the point of becoming a servant. He, he's born into a situation where he tells his disciples at times, I don't have anywhere to sleep. 
He suffers just like a human being on a daily basis by being hungry and thirsty and having just physical needs. And then ultimately we see him going to, to die for us. And Philippians 2 says not just dying for us, but dying on a cross so that we might become rich. Not rich materially, but rich spiritually. Jesus gives up everything in heaven to come to this earth to accomplish everything that we need so that we can be made rich in his righteousness. He comes to do everything for us. That's the picture in the New Testament. To understand love is to see someone give for the sake of somebody else. Okay? And then lastly in my notes, where we choose to put our money is a strong indicator of where our soul will go. Where we choose to invest our money is a strong indicator based on Scripture about where our soul will ultimately end up. Basically, the New Testament says, do you want to know if you're going to heaven or not? Look and see where you're spending your money. Not that spending our money or giving of our money earns salvation. We said last week, Jesus has been radical enough for us. Jesus has been perfect for us. So we don't earn our salvation, but what we do after salvation is evidence that we really got it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 1 Timothy 6, verse 19. Starting verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And then James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So there's this debate going on. Is it, is it faith that saves us or is it works that saves us? And James says it's faith that shows itself to be true by works. And then James explains what a Christian looks like that really has faith. And, and he doesn't choose to, to say that a Christian doesn't do certain things. Instead, he chooses to illustrate it by saying that a Christian does certain things. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So this is concept that James is building here that um, if you're truly a believer, you recognize people in need and you give to meet those needs. To not give to meet those needs is an indicator that you may not really have faith in Christ. Okay? And then, um, as we've already said, a selfish spirit will most likely keep you out of heaven. We've seen the rich ruler in Luke 18, the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16. Um, in Matthew 25, you've got Jesus separating sheep and goats. And what's the criteria for how he separates them? Does anybody remember? Jesus coming back. He's going to divide the world, sheep and goats. How does he know which side to put them on? Anybody remember? 
I mean, this we need to know this because we're going to be divided based on this. Yeah, it's it's those of you that took care of people in need. You're over here. You're you're my children. Those of you that 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 cared about yourself more than others. You're over here. You're going to go to hell for eternity. I mean, that's the criteria that he uses. He doesn't say um, how many of you prayed a prayer, how many of you have been baptized. He says, those of you that took care of people with your money, those of you that seem to think long-term, eternal perspective about money, you're over here like you're my children, like you were the ones that I was really working in. Those of you who, who could care less about other people in need, more concerned about how you were using your money for your purposes, you're split over here. Matthew 25, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to divide people. And then lastly, we looked at the rich fool who, who stored up all his treasures in, in barns. And then Jesus says, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. What good is that stuff for you now? Okay? So just some things to consider as we begin to talk about how to invest our money as a Christian. Essentially, we're learning to budget for judgment day. Rather than tomorrow. How do you budget for judgment day as opposed to structuring your budget for tomorrow? That's what I want us as a church to begin to do. That we sit down and we budget our personal finances for judgment day. When we stand before Jesus, that we're able to say, this is how I use my money. And it's bringing glory and honor to him. Budgeting for judgment day rather than tomorrow. And I put a note in in my notes that we have the inside track that the world is ending And Jesus is coming. That's why we budget for Judgment Day, because we have a picture of how this all wraps up. That the world is ending, so we don't invest here, because Jesus is coming back. So we store up treasures where he's coming from. And you notice there, a disciple learns that having money and resources is more about stewardship than ownership. A disciple learns that having money and resources is more about stewardship than ownership. We have, to, we have to determine in our minds that we don't own the stuff that we have. That the stuff that we have has been given to us by God to use for his purposes. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. That we don't earn stuff. We're given stuff by God. He's the source of everything good in our life. Number one there, we are entrusted with stuff, an arrangement we will answer for. We're to be stewards. And Jesus has promised he will hold us accountable for how well we do with the stuff that he's given us. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. So he gives back to him ten talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. And you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more, will, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, here you have a picture of poor stewardship by individual human beings. And the poor stewardship ultimately ends up resulting in eternal destinations. Poor stewardship. You see the same picture given in Luke twelve thirty-five. Skip down to verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all? For us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Jesus says God has, has entrusted, in a sense, rich people to take care of poor people. He's given money to people to distribute, to be good stewards to people who don't have it. But he says, unfortunately, a lot of times people that have the money look at it and say, I mean, Jesus isn't really coming back. I'm not going to give an account for this stuff. And it says they begin to beat the servants. The picture is that he withholds what he should be giving to the servants. There's enough food for everybody in a sense. But the servant keeps it back and just, just gets drunk and fat on it instead of distributing it to people that have need. And there's accountability when Jesus comes back, Jesus says, for being a poor steward of the money that was given. Secondly, we have been told what to do, but not specifically how to do it. We've been told what to do, but not told specifically how to do it. Here's the, here's the beauty and the freedom that comes from Scripture. Is that we're told to give our money, but we're not told specifically how to give it. Meaning, we're not told exactly how much to give. And we're not commanded and told that we have to do it in a certain way. It's as though God entrusts us as stewards and says, in a sense, be creative in how you give your money. Find joy in being a good money giver by being creative based on your personality, things that you identify. You be faithful to give your money in that way. The command is to give, but the command falls short in giving us a lot of specifics. In Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 11, God's talking to Israel. And he basically tells them, there should never be poor people in your midst. There should never be poor people in your midst. 
And then he goes further in saying there will always be poor people in your midst. And we're to be working to make sure that doesn't happen. He says there's always going to be people that need. And yet you should be trying to work to where there aren't people in need. And then I love what's going on in Acts 5-4. Because I think it clarifies some of the early church stuff. Acts chapter um, 2, 3, and 4. You've got Christians that just seem to be selling everything and giving everything away. And we're selling possessions. We're bringing money to the church. You guys give it wherever you see it needs to go. And if, if we weren't careful, we'd look at that and say, well, it seems that Scripture seems to command that we have to sell everything. The early church is doing it. But we get a really encouraging picture in the midst of tragedy in Acts chapter 5. It says, but a man named Ananias, Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the, at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Here's the key in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias is not rebuked for not giving all the money to the church. He's not rebuked for that. That's not the issue. Peter says, Ananias, don't you realize you really didn't even have to sell this property? He says, the property belongs to you. You're the steward of the property. He says, even after you sold it, the money is yours to steward. If you determine to give half of it to the church and keep half for yourself, Peter's like, that's fine. The church is not commanding you to sell everything and give it to the church. Peter says, we acknowledge that some people are doing that. As stewards of their stuff, they have determined that's the best way to use their stuff for God's glory. Peter says, Ananias, you should not fall into the trap of thinking that those standards apply to you because nobody has set that standard. That standard is not commanded in Scripture. Peter says, you're the steward of this stuff. You determine where it goes. The problem is that you have lied. You have tried to deceive the church in promoting yourself and saying, look, sold my property. Here's all the money so that glory would come to Ananias. And Peter says, that's not what we're interested in. Number three, we must learn to relinquish our rights to stuff so we can use stuff. We have to let go of our stuff so we can actually begin to use our stuff. In Acts chapter 2, verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We do have this picture in the New Testament where the church was selling stuff so that they could give to people in the church that had needs. But I love Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse uh, 32. It says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
since you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. The author of Hebrews is telling us as Christians, we have to let go of our stuff so that as we even begin to use our stuff within the context of this church, as our stuff gets messed up, it's not a big deal. See, there could be a temptation that as we begin to give money, that, that people begin to take advantage of that. Maybe, you know, we say, hey, I'm going to open up my house. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to host a home group. I'm going to host a home group. Um, people can come over. Kids can come over. I'm going to host this. I'm going to feed people. And you may have a situation where, um, where people aren't cleaning up after themselves. Uh, things get broken in your house. And the author of Hebrews is saying that we've got to let go of our stuff in such a way that it's okay for it to be plundered in a sense. It's okay for it to get messed up because there's something better. There's something better that's coming. We're laying up treasures in heaven, not treasures here. So that even as stuff gets messed up, even as our physical possessions get messed up, it's not a big deal. That we have a different perspective about how we're hanging on to the money, to the to possessions that God has entrusted with us. As stewards. Number four, we must learn that using our stuff should be an act of worship. It should be an act of worship. I love Exodus 36, 1 through 7. Uh, Moses and, and the guys there with Israel are, are asking the, the people to give so that they can construct the stuff that God's telling them to build. And there gets to the point where they actually have to tell the people, quit giving. Quit giving. You have given way too much. We have an excess that you have given. We have more than enough to do what God has called us to do. That should be the desire within this church. Is that every single individual is so freed from their love of money. That as we present needs to this church. As we present a budget to this church. That there are actually weeks where we have to stand up and say. Guys, you really don't have to give right now. Like, like we have way too much. We can't even spend what you have given us. And we don't want to waste it by just sticking it in savings. So, so we need you to, to withhold maybe giving right now. Use it for stuff that you see individually. Because we've got way too much to do God's work right now. And that's the picture that goes on here in Exodus. Moses and these guys have to stop the giving because these people are so ready and willing and desiring to give. Philippians 4, 17 through 20, we referenced this already a couple weeks ago. Paul rejoices over the fact that the Philippian church is giving, not because he needs the money, but because he sees them giving as an act of worship. And then in Hebrews 13, verse 15, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When we give of what we have, it's an act of worship. Worship is more than just singing. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a mindset that we're giving of ourselves because that's the way you show love. To love is to give. To love is to give. And, and the author of Hebrews says, you do good to other people. You share what you have. Because that pleases God. That's an act of worship. Secondly, there in your notes, a disciple learns that the gospel is worth the investment of his 
money, time, and resources. A disciple learns that the gospel plan is worth the investment of his money, time, and resources. Here's what we're saying. We've established the fact that that we are stewards, not owners. And we're going to give accountability to it. So we're like the we're like the, the people that have been assigned talents. It's as though Jesus has left and said, Okay, Sarah, okay, Philip, okay, Will, I've given you stuff. You're responsible to use it for my glory. When I come back, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you accountable to it. You don't own it, you didn't earn it, I'm giving it to you. And he distributes differently. Some of us have talents and abilities that are way different than others. Some of us have more money, way more money than others. There's a higher accountability for how God has distributed things to you. So we're stewards. So we have to determine what are we going to do with it. And now as we begin to to move away from that, I want to convince you. I want to show you from Scripture that there's only one place. There's only one way to use what God has given us. And it's for the gospel. It's for the gospel. We have to use what God has given us for the gospel purpose. Number one there, the need, the gospel plan is the only solution for people's eternity. Why would we invest our money, time, and resources in the gospel? Because it's the only, only solution for people's eternity. Book of Romans is basically the gospel. Um, Book of Romans tells you why you need Christ how to get Christ, and then what to do after you have Christ. It's a big presentation of the gospel. Paul builds this argument in the beginning of Romans and shows us why the gospel is absolutely necessary for every single person. The gospel is the only way that the 2.5 billion people that woke up this morning without it can be saved. It's the only way. He says in Romans 1, 18-20 that all people have a knowledge of God. That in creating us, in distributing us all over the planet, every single person has a knowledge of God. The 2.5 billion people that do not have the gospel have a knowledge of God. He says in Romans 1, there are things about God that can be known through creation. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his deity. That That there is something bigger than us, more powerful than us, that was here before we got here. That can be known by everybody. But he says in Romans 1, 21 through 25, all people reject that knowledge. It says people reject the knowledge they have about God and instead make their own gods. We see that all over the world. These 2.5 billion people that don't have the gospel have created gods to worship. They're creating, they're creating and worshiping false gods. Thirdly, all people are guilty before God. All people are guilty before God. Romans three nineteen. We all fall short of God's standard of holiness and perfection. Sometimes people say, well, what happens to the the innocent guy in Africa who's never heard the gospel? And that's a false situation to even consider because that assumes that there are innocent people in Africa and there aren't. Romans 3.19, there aren't any innocent people in Africa. So we don't have to worry about God sending innocent people to hell because they never heard of the gospel. God sends guilty, rebellious sinners to the proper place where his wrath is poured out on them. Everybody has a knowledge of God. Everybody rejects that knowledge. We're guilty before God because of that. All people are condemned for their rejection. Romans 3.20. 
says that every mouth needs to be stopped, 19 and 20. Everyone's found guilty before God because no one can be made right by doing good deeds. Nobody can be good enough to get into heaven. Thankfully, Romans 3, 21 through 24 comes along, and we know that all people have a way to be saved. All people have a way to be saved. Salvation is not for some people, it's for all people. All people have a way to be saved, Jew and Gentile alike. Okay, The gospel is for everyone. There's not anyone that can't come to Christ. Okay, Salvation has been made available. It's the only way to be saved from our sins. And the way is for everyone, and it's the only way. And that way of salvation is through Christ. All people must come to God through faith in Christ. Romans 10, 9, and 10. How can they be saved unless they hear of Christ? How do you know? How do you know that people who, who have never heard of Christ go to hell? Because the mandate for missions is so critical in the New Testament. Think about it. If somebody can go to heaven without hearing of Christ, why in the world would we ever go tell people about Christ? If they can go to heaven because they've never heard about Christ, why would you go and make it possible for them to go to hell? Does that make sense? Like missions, the purpose of missions falls apart if it's possible for people to to enjoy God for eternity without hearing about Christ. If they can go to heaven without hearing about Christ, the mission of the church ought to be to shut our mouths and never talk about Christ to people. Because if there's 2.5 billion people that can go to heaven without hearing about Christ, we should never go talk to them. Because that's 2.5 billion people that are guaranteed to go to heaven. As soon as we walk into their village and start spouting off about Christ, now the possibility is that they can go to hell. Scripture is very clear. They have to hear about Christ to go to heaven. If they do not hear about Christ, they cannot go to heaven. Which leads to the last point there. All churches must respond to the command to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The church has to get serious about making disciples of all nations. Which is why our church has to be serious about being global focused. Not just Sinoi focused. We can't just be Sinoi focused. We focus globally, and in order to go to the ends of the earth, we have to go through Sinoi, right? So we don't neglect Sinoi, we just go through Sinoi when we go to the ends of the earth. We have to be global focused. The question that I put here for you is, do you believe that the gospel plan, which is Romans 9, 10, 9 and 10, the gospel plan is for disciples to be sent, disciples to preach, people to hear, hearers to believe, Believers to call and callers to be saved. I put a note here. The injustice that people die never hearing of Christ doesn't lie with God. It lies with the church. Don't for a second think that God is unfair. He's not unfair that 2.5 billion people woke up today and didn't know about Jesus. The injustice doesn't lie with God. It lies with the church. It's been estimated that... um, If Christians gave 10% of their income, if committed Christians gave just 10% of their income, there would be an extra $46 billion for gospel purposes. 
If every Christian, committed Christian, not just people that call themselves Christians, if real committed Christians gave 10% of their income, there would be an extra $46 billion to reach these people with the gospel. I can tell you right now, with, with the internet and with the technology that we have, the possibility of getting the gospel to people is way easier than it's ever been before. We can get to people a whole lot quicker than we ever have before in history. The injustice lies with the church not giving of its resources to make this happen. All right, so the, the need is great. Okay, they're, 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 they're bill- and that doesn't even register. I can keep saying $2.5 billion. To me, if you can't picture what that looks like, then it's hard for that to register what that even means. The need is great. The need is great. But there's even more reason that we should invest our money and our time and our resources in the gospel. Secondly, there's a promise. There's a promise, and the promise is that the gospel plan is guaranteed to work. The gospel plan is guaranteed to work. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom, this is Jesus talking, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus says, I'm not coming back until the whole earth has heard the gospel. Like it has to happen. Verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he's not lying. Like he said it, so it will happen. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to... Revert on what he said. The gospel has to go around the globe, has to go around the planet before I'm coming back. At Sovereign Hope, we want to be a church that's focused on the return of Jesus Christ. Well, we need to understand that he's not coming back until the gospel goes around the globe. Okay? So if we really want Jesus to come back, if that's really our hope, then we work, we work to get to the point where that happens. Okay? It's guaranteed to work. Well, how do we know it's guaranteed to work? Because thank God he gave us the book of Revelation. And we see it work. Revelation chapter 5, 6 and 9, 6 through 9. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... Twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. All these crazy-looking creatures in heaven acknowledge that when Jesus came to die on the cross, he saved people all over the planet. It's, it's assured. That's a promise. Even the people, the creatures in heaven recognize this. But we give it even a better picture of it in Revelation 7. John's talking to us, and he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number... 2.5 billion people have never heard of Jesus. John says, I saw a number in heaven. I can't even give you a number for it. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, 
with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a futuristic picture. It's a futuristic picture of people from everywhere worshiping Christ. Jesus says, I'm not coming back till this happens. He then gives the picture to John and says, by the way, it will happen. Matthew 28, he says, go make it happen. Go make disciples of all nations. So it's promised. It's guaranteed to work. It's guaranteed to work. There's two things that we need to understand about that. When we think about serving in this church, when we think about making disciples, we can rest. We can rest knowing that God doesn't need us for his plan to be successful. Okay? God doesn't need you for the gospel to work. We don't evangelize because God needs us. If Cortland says, you know what, I'm I'm not interested in making disciples, I'm not interested in sharing the gospel. Then Revelation 7 is not in danger of not happening. Revelation 7 is happening. Whether Cortland evangelizes and makes disciples or not, Revelation 7 will happen. So there's, there ought to be some encouragement there that, great, Revelation 7 doesn't happen or not happen based on whether or not I do a good job of this. It's going to happen. But, secondly, we work knowing that success will happen through our obedience. We can be encouraged knowing that it actually does work. Like, it's going to happen. There's no, there's, no, there's no possibility of this investment not coming through. You invest in the gospel, you're investing in something that works. It happens. Revelation 7. You put your money towards gospel purposes, and you'll be able to rejoice over the fact that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worship Jesus one day. The question that we ask ourselves is, do you view your part in God's plan as needed or commanded? Big difference. Does God need you or does he command you? I love Esther 4.14. Mordecai talking to his cousin. He says, hey, Esther, wake up and realize that you're the queen. You're in a position to change what is about to happen. Israel is about to be exterminated. Mordecai says, you need to take care of this. You need to go to the king and ask for this not to happen. And then I love what he tells her. He says, by the way, if you choose not to do this, Israel will still be saved. God will just use somebody else to do it. He says, but if you're interested, you can get in on what's happening and be a part of this. But if you choose not to get in, that's fine because it's still going to happen. And that's what we need to realize. Sonoy, the salvation of Sonoy happens whether we start this church or not. God doesn't need us in Sonoy to make this happen. If he doesn't use us, he'll use somebody else. But it will happen. It's a guarantee. I don't know if you've ever seen um, the movie Back to the Future 2. Back to the Future 2, they go into the future um, to try to fix some stuff and, and, and to see some stuff. Anyways, in, in the process of that, the bad guy in the, in the story, in the movie, uh, ends up getting a sports almanac, which has, like, all the records of who wins ball games. He gets in the time machine, goes back in the past, gives it to himself and says, Hey, buddy, uh, bet on all these games, and you and me both will be millionaires. So he gives him basically a picture of how things happen. And so the guy ends up investing his money, and it's not really an investment because it's a guarantee. He has the playbook that says this team wins, this team wins, this team wins. It's a no-brainer to put your money in that because you know who wins. It's the same picture we get here in the, in the New Testament. 
We put our money, we put our money in the gospel. Put our money in the gospel because it's guaranteed to win. It's guaranteed to win. Number three, warning. The gospel plan requires suffering. The gospel plan requires suffering. The gospel plan requires suffering. First John three thirteen. It says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John warns us, he says, be prepared for the world to hate you. Be prepared for the world to to not like what we're about when we share the gospel. But we've already talked about the fact that we can rest knowing that God works our circumstances for good. So even in the midst of suffering, Romans 8.28 applies, that God works for our good. But we also need to recognize that as we suffer, we suffer for Christ. We help people understand that Christ has given his life for them. What do I mean by that? Look in 1 John 3, 16. We've already said in verse 14, we know that we pass from out of death into life because we love people. We love brothers. Verse 16, how do you know love? We said earlier, you know love by the fact that you give to others. By this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So how do we know Jesus loved us? Well, he died on the cross for us. And then John says we're to lay down our life for others. John doesn't for a second mean that you're supposed to go die on the cross for somebody. We don't follow Jesus' example by loving other people by dying on the cross. How do we love other people? He tells us. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We lay down our lives for others by giving of our goods to people that need it. That's the picture. Love is understood by the act of giving. Jesus demonstrated it by dying on the cross. He gives his life for us. We demonstrate that we love other people by giving of our goods to those that are in need. The question that you have to ask yourself is, do you regularly seek to lay down your life for others after the pattern of Jesus? And then lastly in that section, the reward. The gospel plan is satisfying. The gospel plan is satisfying. Do you believe what is coming is worth all the sacrifice for the time being? Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Are we convinced that what is coming is actually better than what we can get here? Is the best heaven here nothing in comparison to what is coming to us? All right, next, and we'll we'll, we'll just finish with this point and we'll cover the rest um, next time. A disciple learns that the local church can be trusted as an extension of the gospel plan. All right, so we're stewards of what we have. We need to invest it in the gospel. 
And the best way to do that is to invest it through the church. God uses the church to reach the world. Number one, it is right. It is right to compensate the biblical leadership of the church. It's right, it's biblical to pay church leadership. 1 Corinthians 9. 6 through 14. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, it's biblical to pay church leadership. It's biblical. It's, it's, it's in a sense suggested. Paul says, we've refrained from doing it. And I think the reason that Paul refrains from doing it is because all this is pretty new. The whole concept of church and, and leadership and the way that it's being set up is new. So Paul says, we've chosen not to take pay because this whole thing is kind of just getting started and we don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. But he sets this example moving forward and he says, you need to pay people that labor in the church in a leadership position. You need to pay them. He says... The same command was given in the Old Testament. When you're using your, your cows and your ox to plow your land, you don't keep them from eating what they're working and helping you do. You don't muzzle the ox. You don't prevent him from being able to gain from some of the work that he's putting into it. And that's the picture here in 1 Corinthians, that, that true biblical leadership is to be compensated for the effort and the work they put into it. Um, I gave you a couple other passages here, Galatians 6.6. 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So part of the response to being taught the word is to share back with the one who's doing the teaching. First um, Timothy three, two through three. This is important because this is the qualification for people that should be paid. It says, therefore, an overseer, sometimes translated elder, must be above reproach. The husband of one, of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. See, this is protection for you as the church. You do not, you do not have to worry about giving money to someone who's going to abuse it in the right situation because people that are pastors 
are supposed to be non-lovers of money. Which means they're not greedy. Which means they don't use the church for personal gain. Which means they're not loving money so much that they can't trust Christ with their needs. This is protection. Paul says you, you pay leadership, but you also get the right leadership so you can be comfortable paying them. So you don't have to worry about them misusing the money that you give them. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Specifically, the leadership that teaches and preaches is to be compensated, to be taken care of. Be compensated and to be taken care of. I'll explain in a couple of weeks how this... Um, how this can and should look within the context of this church. Um, we'll elaborate on that more moving forward. Number two, it's right to compensate the missionaries sent from the church. It's right to compensate missionaries sent from the church. Not only do you pay pastors who stay here, we pay people who leave and go to the ends of the earth. Romans fifteen twenty four and Titus three thirteen are examples of Paul taking money from churches to go do mission work. Ideally, we want to continue to send people out of this body around the world. Chris Henson is one who is planning to go and to go long-term to Uganda. We want to commit financially to helping take care of him because he's going somewhere that we can. And then thirdly, it's right to entrust the church to meet the real needs of the church. It's right to entrust the church to meet the real needs of the church. Meaning, it's biblical to give money to the church so that the church can take care of people in the church. In Acts 4, 32-37, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. There was, not need, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So here was the process. They were selling stuff, bringing it to the church, telling the leadership to spend it the way they saw fit. But what I really like about, and this is the last thing we'll look at, 1 Timothy 5, 4 through 16, there's a whole discussion about how to take care of widows, and there's instruction about making sure that the widow actually has a real need. Paul goes even so far to say that if the widow doesn't meet a certain age criteria, they're not to be enrolled as, a, um, as in need for the church to help them. Why? Because if you're going to give money to the church, we should only use it on stuff that's a real need. The idea of benevolence and giving to people in need, there's the responsibility for church leadership to determine what is and what isn't a legitimate need so that your money's not wasted. You put the right people in leadership, which is why affirming eldership is so important, because the moment that you affirm elders, you're saying, I trust you. You've demonstrated to me that you know the Bible and can make good decisions with it. I'm entrusting you to make good decisions with the money that I'm giving to this church. So it's right to compensate biblical leadership. Compensate missionaries. It's right to give money to the church. Because they are supposed to meet the real needs of the church. Alright, we'll stop right there. Anybody have any questions about that stuff?
stuff about the gospel working, us being stewards, and then starting to give to the local church. Any questions on any of these passages that we read? All right. Um, like I said, next week we will spend some time, those of you that can be here, discussing some of the stuff that we've been talking about, giving you guys some opportunities to um, to think through some stuff, to talk about some stuff. We'll actually email some questions out this week that will be used as kind of a starter for next week's discussion so you can be reflecting and thinking of those moving forward. All right, let's pray. God, we come to you right now. We want to praise you and thank you for who you are, for the salvation that you've given us. We thank you that you not only gave us a knowledge of you through creation, you've given us a knowledge about you through the gospel. God, I thank you that you enabled us to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel. You put us in a situation. You allowed us to be born into a people group that had the gospel in their language. And so, God, we thank you for that. We recognize that we could be a part of the 2.5 billion people right now that do not have the gospel. God, I pray that we would take any thoughts of injustice towards you and apply them to us as the church. That there are 2.5 billion people right now who don't know you and who do not have access to you. Because ultimately the global church is failing to make disciples of all nations. God, I pray for us as a church that we would do our part. That we would be faithful to make disciples. God, that you would enable us to, to examine our budgets, to examine our money, to make cuts where we can make cuts so that we can invest in something that ultimately wins. There's no, there's no risk involved when we invest in the gospel. You've assured us from the book of Revelation that what you have asked to be done will be done. Help us to see and find assurance and encouragement that you do not need us, but that you've commanded us. And so we respond out of obedience, not out of need. God, help us to respond knowing that we will be successful. People will be saved. And you ultimately will be glorified. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.